Hey gang, welcome to episode 187 of the No Proscenium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from the No Pro studio in Los Angeles, aka my kitchen table. It's uh, it's raining outside, which is great because I'm about to be moving some furniture. Yay! Um, this episode is brought to you by listeners like you. No, don't worry, I'm not moving furniture during the podcast, although that would be interesting. Uh, you know, let's think about that. Uh, this week on the show, uh, Catherine Yu jumps in uh, to host, and uh, she's tracked down the always busy Kellyanne Adams Pletcher and Brian Pletcher of Green Door Labs, and they have this big conversation about immersive theater and game design and the work they've been doing on things like Club Drosselmeyer and Save the Munbacks. And it's going to be awesome. And we're all going to listen to it together. Uh, in fact, I will probably listen to it while I'm moving furniture because that's how this works. We just got back from uh, Immersive Design Summit. That's why there wasn't an episode last week. Because I was like, we'll totally get an episode. Nope. Because so many fires to put out. Um, Hey, uh, people seem to have a good time. Uh, We definitely stretched ourselves to the absolute limit of what we could physically produce, uh, both in terms of the number of people we crammed into this space. Um, There was was one point where we had like crammed so many people into uh, Cafe du Nord for uh, the workshops because people wanted workshops and we wanted to make that happen. Uh, We actually had to move some people out of one room and into the hallway uh, just to keep things flowing. And so we we wound up doing that twice. So I know there was a lot of people who were like, you know, upset that they didn't make it. We, anyone who's there can tell you, we could not stick another human being in that space. Like we were, we were filled to the gills, which just means, you know, the 2020 event needs to be bigger. Although there's something to be said for keeping it intimate. So now we've got the very interesting job of scaling up and yet retaining the the sense of intimacy and connection. Um, you know, there someone someone bandied about uh, the word exclusive in a positive way, and I cringed because uh, that is not what I'm interested in. I am interested in the, the, the paradox of me is that uh, I I am I am definitely a small D Democrat, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm other things. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open about the fact that I'm progressive, uh, but at, at its core, deep down underneath all that, like I believe in democracy, which might be an insane position to have in the face of the world we've got today. And if you look at the tide of history, like oh, is democracy really winning? Let's not get depressed. But I believe in, uh, I believe that, you know, People who have, a, you know, real stakes on the table should have a say in what happens, right? So I don't like structures where it's just like you pay your money, you get in the door, which would lead us to like raise the price up so high to control things. So people would just look at it and be like, oh, I could never afford that. So I'm not going to worry about it. Um, it's one of the reasons why we gave out like 70 scholarships, half of which were full rides because we were getting people in and we we're like, wow, this, this is really cool. And here's someone who, who would, would not really be represented in the mix of people in the room if we didn't give them a scholarship. So let's make sure we get them in. Um, so we did stuff like that. A lot of stuff like that. Um, like about 35% of the people in the building were, were on that kind of kind of go, um, which I think if you, maybe if you, I don't know, I, I don't have stats on like other gatherings of, of in other industries, if that's a, a terribly common thing or not, because the computer crashed and it is nine hours later because I had a very aggressive day of chores, so, which means that no, I didn't get to listen to this episode while I was moving furniture. In fact, uh, maybe we'll get a chance to listen to it on Sunday. It's about 8 o'clock now, uh, Saturday. Uh, This is what happens. Uh, Since everything was already said, I didn't feel like erasing it all. Um, And also by way of explanation as to why this episode came out so late 
uh, on a weekend. We're, we are playing catch-up. Uh, we're going to be playing catch-up for at least another week, uh, just because that is the <coughs> nature of the beast. And uh, I'm going back uh, I'm going back to work on, uh, on Monday. Um, a little bit about that. Uh, as you all know, I do have a, a full-time job in public media. Uh, it is where majority of my skills such as they are come from uh and it i i don't actually know what i'm going back into it's kind of weird i've been gone for a month i don't know where things stand um i'm I'm nervous on a couple of levels and i think i'm going back in at three quarters time uh so that i can start focusing more on what we do over here and that is in time kind of carried over but uh contrary to popular belief um I'm not an eccentric millionaire, not yet anyway. Uh, I, I do keep on trying to find someone to like just drop a bunch of money on us and just like, hey, <laughs> there's like a few billionaires out there. What? Just create a millionaire. Let's let's see what happens. Um, one thing that's key to all this, you know where this is going. <laughs> one thing that's key to all this is the Patreon, and <clears throat> I want to say that uh, we put a call out uh, just after IDS, and a lot of people responded, uh, and in fact, uh, it's been a good couple of weeks here. We've been off for two weeks, and there's just a whole bunch of names, uh, which I am about to butcher a few of them. So, uh, J.W. Spina, uh, Gene Stevens, Jenny Weinblum, Fernando Gomes, more about Ferdy in a second, uh, Jay Putnam, Jessica Ellen Crean, Abel Horwitz, Jessica M- Muller, or it could be Mueller, uh, uh, I, I've, I've heard it both ways. Uh, I've, I've, I, I lived with people, two, two brothers named, uh, named Mueller, uh, LaSalle Duong, uh, Chris Solansky. I'm sure I ruined someone's name. Uh, it's, I tried to sell it like it's part of my charm. Um, mostly I'm just like, just please everyone tell me how to pronounce your name. I really hate saying them wrong. Uh, I, it is the one thing I get nervous about. I do. I've I've messed up people's names introducing them in public. I hate it so much. You also hear my voice may have gone. <clears throat> my voice has like been in and out all week. Um, I think it will last about like an hour and a half. Uh, I had it this morning and now I don't. Um, these were all the folks who just joined the Patreon. Maybe I mentioned that. Uh, Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, that's a whole bunch of people. Uh, somehow, because of like shakeouts and whatnot, uh, we, we've we gone from 214 last time we checked to 218. That, that was more than four people, though. So there's a churn here. Um, there's this, we're, we're, we keep on treading water. We're up to uh, $1,246 a month, which is fantastic. We were at 1234 before. Um, it is absolutely vital that we have this foundation to keep things moving forward. Uh, if Patreon were to uh, go belly up tomorrow, we'd have to shut down operations. Um, there's uh, the, the good news is uh, with this year's IDS, it looks like uh, we actually made some money. We did not make money last year. I may have mentioned this. Um, so we could take those thousands of hours of work and uh, maybe get close to a quarter of minimum wage, uh, which would be rad. Um, we, we do sort of run this as a charity. Uh, soon, hopefully, we will run it as an actual charity. <laughs> like, <clears throat> that would be smart. Okay, and the computer failed again. Uh, so I guess I don't get to complete that sentence. I get about four minutes worth of recording time right now. So I got to figure out what's wrong with this thing and hope that it actually bounces down uh, the episode. Otherwise, uh, we'll be doing a special Kickstarter soon for a new computer because we the old one isn't working. That's great. Okay, yeah, fun times. Um, just something I didn't need right now. Sorry to be negative. Uh, my tools aren't working. Okay, on that note, uh, patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, we'll do something afterwards. Let's go to the episode. <laughs> This is Catherine Yu with No Proscenium New York, and today on the show we have... Uh, my name is Kelly and Adams Pletcher. And I'm Brian Pletcher. And, uh, and our company is Green Door Labs. Awesome. So, Kelly and Brian, uh, you guys make games, but also theater. Can you talk a little bit about your background in doing this kind of stuff? Sure. Uh, so, I've been a game designer for, oh gosh, going on 10 years now. And I had a really strange beginning as a game designer. Uh, I started in Shanghai, 
And so uh, I was a teacher in Shanghai, you know, like 24 years old. And I was like, oh, I can, I can do all the things. I'm 24. Uh, so when somebody asked me, they were like, oh, hey, can, can you be a producer for this games company? Everybody speaks Chinese. I was like, no problem. I'm on it. Uh, yeah, so, so I spent uh, probably about a year, two years um, designing a Chinese language video game um, in a company in Shanghai, which was really fun. And uh, I learned a lot about um, game design and how to structure things, and then I came back to the U.S. and learned how to do it for real. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's how I started in game design. And then I uh, went to grad school, came out and started to work for a gaming company called Scavenger. And then Scavenger uh, sort of pivoted, and that's when I started Green Door Labs. And my very first game with Green Door uh, was about 2012. Yeah, Green Door's first game was 2012, and it was Murder at the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So what a game to start with, right? No pressure. <laughs> it's just the Met, no big deal. And uh, Brian, how did you get started? Uh, I started more from the mechanical puzzle side, so I started out um, collecting Hanayama cast puzzles, and that sort of led me into all sorts of different mechanical puzzles, puzzle boxes, and things like that. Um, and Kelly and I would play different games and things like that together, so I've been helping her out with some of the, uh, the immersive theater type things that she's been working on. Yeah, Brian's also been going to the International Puzzle Party for the last seven years. Uh, since 2009, I think, 2010. Yeah, yep. yeah, and he's a judge now, so every year um, we go to oh dear. <laughs> the puzzle party, yeah. which... For the puzzle design competition. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And where did the theater piece come in? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so we met swing dancing, so we're both dancers. Uh, and I knew that I wanted... So this was kind of funny. Like, initially, I came at it from the dance perspective, um, because swing is a really interesting art form, right? Where it's sort of couched in this historical dance and music form. Um, but like every form, you know, like you know, ballet or classical, I mean, it has places to grow. And so the question for me was like, where, where could swing grow, right? Like where could this specific type of art form um, expand and, and be new and be exciting for people and bring new people in and, and share what we have with other people. And uh, and I always knew that the direction that it was going to take was something theater-based because swing is just so joyful and expressive. And, uh, yeah, so I always knew that I wanted to do some sort of immersive production um, that would involve swing dancing somehow and that would probably relate to games since that's what we know how to do. Uh, yeah, and I got the idea when I was watching uh, ballet. I, I was watching the uh, Jose Mateo ballet, ballet Theater. I was sitting there, and I was like, just it wasn't it wasn't the Nutcracker at all. But that's when it came to me. And I was like, oh my god, the Nutcracker! Like that's the perfect uh, base uh, to to use swing and games and interactive storytelling and LARPing and environment and all the things that I love. Like we can put them together in uh, in one story that is very modular. And what did that eventually become? Uh, and that, and that was Club Drosselmeyer. That was, uh, that was the nexus of Club Drosselmeyer, which was my first show, Club Drosselmeyer 1939, our first show. <laughs> I thought it was a terrible idea. He did. <laughs> it, seemed like Why? A, it seemed like a ton of work for not a lot of reward. I didn't know if we could pull it off, but uh, Kelly and managed it, and it turned out to be a really awesome thing. Yeah. Yeah, initially I, I dragged him kicking and screaming. <laughs> And, uh, and then we cast him as Club Dro- uh, as Herr Drosselmeyer, as the lead. That helps. Uh, which helps. Which helps, definitely. Well, Brian's also like a magician and a performer, um, and it just seemed like the right fit. So what year was this? Story year and uh, our year. Okay. 2000, so uh, 2016, we built Club Drosselmeyer in 1939, um, and 2016 was, oh, such a painful year for everybody. Um, and so it was largely, for me, a, a response to sort of what was happening in the world, you know, sort of... Politically. Re- politically. Politically. Not just politically, no. like politically and like socially and morally, and oh, God, it just felt like the world was coming down around your ears. And so uh, it was just this sense of like trying to remind myself and others that like, we've been here before. It's been worse before. We survived. You know, we can do it again. Mm. Um, yeah, so there were, there were a lot of echoes between 1939 and uh, 2016. A lot of them were sort of buried in there. You know, I didn't slap people across the face with them, but if you looked, then you would find, you know, a lot of, a lot of ties. So for people who maybe haven't heard about Club Drosselmeyer, can you explain the setup and how you're bringing all these different elements together? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so Club Drosselmeyer is my baby. So <laughs> it's an interactive nutcracker in swing time. And we uh, rewrote the entire Nutcracker Suite. So Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite, we got an eight-piece swing band, and we rewrote the whole thing um, into Lindy Hop rhythm, because uh, we're swing dancers. And so, um, you know, Boston, it's not New York or L.A. We knew that we needed to start with existing um, communities. We couldn't just sort of like cast it out to the world and be like, hey guys, come to this thing you've never heard of before. Um, so we, we started with communities that we knew and we know the swing, swing dance community really well. We knew the vintage community really well. Um, you know, Boston's jazz community we're also pretty connected to and, uh, and also sort of the escape room community. Like these were all people and, and uh, tangentially the LARPing community also got involved. Uh, so these were communities that we knew that we could connect. Uh, and bring to this show. So, yeah, so what we built was uh, something that was based on the Nutcracker, and it goes through the Nutcracker's suite, the, the songs, uh, but, you know, rewritten and with a big band that plays them, and with Ginger Lamar, the uh, incredible Elise Roth is our lead singer, and she kind of brings you through the whole thing. Um, and we had an open dance floor, so our Lindy Hoppers, some of them would just show up to dance because they knew the band was going to be good and the songs were going to be great. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so we had all of our uh, space for dancers, and then we rebuilt the entire environment so it looked like a 1940s nightclub. Uh, which, again, you know, New York, uh, L.A., you know, L.A.'s got this Acada Club, and, like, New York has got Spring 46, so, you like, you guys have these spaces, but Boston is, doesn't really have anything like that. So, like, just to build a space like that and have it exist for a couple of nights, I think, was a draw for people. Um, yeah, so we had people that just showed up looking amazing, you know, like, they just sat, watched the band, watched the performances, and uh, drank cocktails all night. Um, and then sort of the third and fourth way to go was um, then we layered in NPCs. Uh, so we had all these different characters. So it's the Drossel, uh, it's a Club Drosselmeyer, it's the Nutcrackers. So we had uh, Dr. Claire Stahlbaum, um, who was head of AI at Drosselmeyer Industries, um, which is a company out of MIT, um, sort of a military technology company, and they're working on a brand new product, uh, which they're calling Project Nutcracker. Uh, new military technology, sort of an AI, super soldier, a robot, uh, could change the face of military history. And uh, then, of course, there was Rhett, quote, the Rat King. Um, and Rhett King, you know, he was sort of a Boston mob boss. Um, by year two, he had his own robot, which he called the Ratbot 3000. Uh, most recently, the Ratbot 3000 was upgraded to the Ratbot 3000S. <laughs> so we had all these different characters. We had Ginger Lamar, of course, his mother Ginger, uh, Sugar Fay, who's our sugar plum fairy. Um, and Herr Drosselmeyer, who owns the club. Exactly. The uh, Herr Drosselmeyer. Yeah. So um, how do people interact with the performers? What are they trying to do during Club Drosselmeyer? So every year is different. Um, so it's essentially uh, the format of almost like an escape room for 150 people. So I think the thing that makes our productions really unique uh, is that it has a really strong uh, game design structure um, to the point where like, we have things like playmats and wireframes. Um, like playmats, wireframes, storyboards, and then script. Um, and I think that that's what makes our productions sort of a game first and then theater after. Um, and we're working on the theater part, like we want to get stronger with, you know, how the scenography work, how the actors work, um, but like, but it starts with that sort of map, um, and usually what we've got is, uh, since it's 150 people, we need something where the super puzzlers, like people who really, really want to get to the end of this game, that they can do it, um, in the course of two, three hours, um, but if somebody only gets one track, that there's still a reward for them. Uh, so, like, for instance, what we did this year, um, there were sort of, there was a, a main plot that you could solve, um, by, uh, going through one of these three different tracks and then collaborating with other players, um, about 12 to 20 puzzles, I would say, throughout the entire evening. Mm, yeah. More like 12, I would 12, say. yeah. And then, uh... You we, don't have to do them all to get to the end. We refined right. it a little bit this year, so yeah. you didn't have to do every single puzzle to get to the end. Right. Uh, yeah, and there's like a series of side quests as well. 
so the super puzzlers can kind of plow through, just sort of, you know, head to the table, puzzling the entire time to get to the very end. A very small percentage of people actually solve uh, the very entire thing. Um, we'll usually have maybe two, three teams that will make it to the very end of it. Um, and then the large number of people, they'll solve maybe one or two things, and then they'll sort of get attached to one storyline or one character or one sort of set of puzzles, and then that will be sort of their experience. And, you know, then they'll spend the rest of the night sort of dancing and talking to other characters. Um, this year, uh, we also added um, player characters. So there's the non-player characters, which are, you know, Harry Drosselmeyer and Ginger Lamar. Um, but this year we added sort of another subtext where you work at Drosselmeyer Industries in the confectionery division and you really want to learn more about Kara Marshallows, you know. So then there's another layer that you could potentially interact with if you want to. So um, this is a very roundabout way to say it, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. It's uh, so it's very layered, um, and I and I think that's what we're going at, uh, going for with Drosselmeyer, um, and you know with the other stuff that we're building as well, Save the Munbacks, um, and you know another production that I'm working on now, uh, is this idea, especially with gaming, is, um, you know, when you ask people to get into a game, it's a big ask. Um, they have to be really committed. Um, there's that sense that they can do it wrong or not wrong, and I think that my approach to this comes from like years and years of working at interactives with museums, right? That sense there. It's like, I don't want people to be able to do it wrong um, or feel like they're going to do it wrong. So you can engage multiple levels. Like, if you want to come in and just sit and watch the band and look wonderful, then go for it. Um, or if you want to come in and just dance all night and not do anything else, then absolutely. Uh, if you just want to LARP, you want to do nothing but engage with the characters, you can do that. Or if you're a puzzler, then you can just, like, go straight on for the puzzles, puzzle the entire night. Um, so we just wanted multiple um, levels of engagement, you know, multiple ways for people to enter the story. And that's something we've been refining over the years. The first year, you didn't really get the full story unless you finished it. Um, but the last two years, you've been able to get some rewarding experiences if you only get partway through it. And that's probably something we'll, we'll be continuing to do. And probably when we loop back to the first year, we'll revisit that. And... Yeah. So how do you balance kind of the role-play puzzling aspects with trying to tell this story? Yeah, good question, right? <laughs> it's different every year. Do you have any take on that? No, you go ahead. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so, again, uh, for us, a lot of it comes down to game dynamics, right? Um, so we sort of choose the structure of our game first. Um, so year one, uh, we decided that it was going to be um, act one, uh, trigger an event, Act 2. Um, in the second year, uh, we chose a voting dynamic, which was related to mega games, where we had like two very clear uh, tracks that you can take, and you could like vote for one robot or the other, and that would, um, and that would trigger an ending you know, if you assembled everything. And this year we went with a, a sort of uh, collaboration dynamic, where we had uh, three different tracks, and you had to work together in order to make things work. Sorry for the spoiler. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that was that was last Christmas. That was last so Christmas. I'm exactly. sure this Christmas will be totally different. Yeah. So among the different approaches, whether it's, you know, one big decision tree that everyone writes along together or people working collaboratively collaboratively across the tracks, what do you think is more, I guess, fulfilling for the audience as a whole, right? Because one thing that I struggle with is you could have one player who's extremely aggressive mm -hmm. and they could be having a great time and that could actually be at the detriment of everyone else. So again, like how do you balance the needs of like people as individuals versus the collective experience? And maybe this is also a great segue into how you do multiple endings. Ah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is a really interesting thing. Like, you know, I was thinking a lot about this because I played Mortality Machine last night, and there's only 12 of us in a small space, and, like, I played hard. And I think I was really annoying to everybody else. Maybe that, a little. Maybe, yeah, because <laughs> I was having a grand old time, and it was hilarious. Right, so there's, you know, the situation where, like, one strong personality, like, detracts um, from other people's experience, like, or even just not even detract, but like they dominate, like they drive, right. they they become the de facto decision maker. Right. So a lot of people told us, and I think this was kind of interesting, um, that uh, they sort of fell into roles in Club Drosselmeyer, which um, is different than anything I've played in other 
um, experiences that people would say, like, I was the collector of puzzles, right? So I'm outgoing, and I really wanted to play this part. And so I went out and talked to everybody. And they gave me puzzles, and I brought them back to my table. And then the people who wanted to stay at the table and didn't want to move around, they just sat at the table, and they just cranked through puzzles the whole time. Um, and then I'd have other people that were like, yeah, like, I'm really introverted. Like, I'm, I'm a puzzler. I didn't want to have to talk to anybody, but I just sent the outgoing people out on missions to get stuff. And I sat there, and I was the, the person that solved things. Um, I had one person this year who told me that she just decided that she was a silk magnate. And she, yeah, we had these cards where you had to collect different rations. And she was like, I just decided that I was going to collect every piece of silk in the entire club. <laughs> wow. Did, was that in, uh, you know, reference to a side quest or a separate goal? Was there like a character asking for silk? It was a character. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, great. So we gave her a character um, and it talked something about uh, silk production. I don't even remember what it was, but she just went with it. And she was like, I'm a silk magnate now. I'm going to own all of the silk uh, in this club, and then I'm going to sell it all at a profit later on. So, uh, yeah, so she created her own her own ending. Um, yeah, so, so I think the answer to that is that um, as opposed to other productions where you're sort of forced to work together, um, Drosselmeyer has a very individual approach to it. Like, you can sort of play it however you want to play it. Um, like, and you don't have to get to the end. Like, we won't... We won't force an ending, you know, and if you if you just kind of want to sit down and puzzle by yourself all night, you can do that, um, or if you want to sort of group up, uh, you can do that as well. And we do, talk, we're talking about puzzles, but puzzles represent tasks that you're helping the characters with, so right, it's right. not, you're not just like solving crossword puzzles, right. but it's, <laughs> like, it's like you're helping out, um, helping out uh, Vera Candelovo with her citizenship issues by filling out some paperwork that is symbolized by a thematic puzzle that she's you. Right. Yeah, and we, we just had so much fun with it. So, like, Vera Candelova, um, she's trying to earn citizenship um, through her husband, Mr. Kane, Bill Kane. Um, so she's uh, uh, Vera Candelova Kane. And she People call to... her Candy for short. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a lot more succinct. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And she wants to become uh, Citizen Candy Kane. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely a Christmas show. I'm sorry. It, well, you know, it's the Nutcracker. Um, and she's Russian, of course. Uh, yeah, so we have all these tie-ins, you know, with uh, with the original Nutcracker, and most of them are sort of, like, linked in these weird little ways like that. Yeah, there's a lot of historical tie-ins as well. Kellyanne does a ton of research into the history for each year, and... Um yeah, so that's really interesting. I'm not sure how many people appreciate what the what the tie-ins are, but it really no, inspires our writing process, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think this year I'm actually going to write an, uh, sort of an epilogue and be like, hey, by the way, you know, this was related to like the real history. You know, historical figures that it all ties into. So. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a player. I'm choosing how much I want to engage. I might be doing tasks on behalf of a character. Uh, can you talk about... That one year you had the bad ending, or is it every year you have a, a bad ending? You have to write an unsatisfactory ending. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah. So every every year we have a bad ending. Um, right. I would say this year's bad ending was less bad. Yeah, yeah. It was just different. Yeah. It depends how much you know what's going on, but um, just you're trying to figure out who the spy in the club is, and you can either figure it out or figure <laughs> it out, and, or you can yeah. side with her. Right. And she'll take uh, a hostage. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> That's what happened this year? Right. But we did it in a more comedic way. The first year, the bad ending year. was a little depressing. Oh, it was so brutal. Like so so, brutal. several characters die. You died. I died, yeah. which was a little challenging. Yeah, I had to kill my husband. Yeah. Wait, you you personal? Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. But you know, I wrote it in there. Uh, yeah, so the first year, well, we only had two shows, um, so that's another restriction that we work with in Boston, is that you can't have very long runs, it's really hard to get space. Uh, we didn't know it was going to work at all, you know, it was by the skin of our teeth, and it was self-funded, and I mean, and it's a big production, you know, like, swing band, magicians, tap dancers, uh, aerialists, I mean, cast of 40, you are You're in, like, a big ballroom... It's a black box theater. It's a black box theater yeah. in uh, in Harvard Square. Oh, nice! It's called yeah. Club Oberon, and it's got sort of stage space, and there's a bar in the back, and sort yeah. of a raised uh, mezzanine where we put the VIP seats. Yeah, there. owned by the uh, American Repertory Theater. So that's you know one really nice resource that we have in Boston is the ART. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, so anyway, so that very first year, so we only had those two shows, and we didn't know what anybody was going to do. We'd never done anything like this. 
And we've never really seen a show like this that gave 150 people full agency yet. Like, we just hadn't... It was pretty early on in the immersive world, and we, hadn't, we, we had no, like, playbook to go by. <laughs> like, there was no rule book for this. Uh, yeah, so the first year, you had to figure out, um, first of all, who Project Nutcracker was, and then you had to find the blueprints, and then you had to decide if you were going to give the blueprints over to Herr Drosselmeyer. Um, safely return them to Herr Drosselmeyer, um, or if you were going to give them to Rhett the Rat King, and if you were going to give them over to the, the gangster. Um, and the first night, um, people gave him to Herr Drosselmeyer, and it was lovely, and everybody sang and danced, and I was happy. And uh, then the second night, I feel like this was when we really trained our audience, because I feel like at that point, nobody really thought we would do this. I think everybody thought, like, oh, well, it's fun to be bad, and we're going to hand it over to the bad guy. And so they handed it over to the bad guy, and then the bad guy um, takes over the show, shoots Herr Drosselmeyer, shoots Clara, and then drags the Nutcracker off the stage, and then we throw up the house lights. <laughs> kicked everybody out. They kicked everybody out. No, no curtain call, so it was very... <laughs> Yeah, it was very jarring. Very dramatic. It was, it was very jarring. So it was one team that got to the end first who decided, hey, let's see what happens. I'm going to break the game. I want to see if they'll yeah. actually go with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you followed through. We did. And this was a pre-written, pre-rehearsed, bad ending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we knew that that was going to happen. We kind of hoped that it wouldn't because it was really bad. Like, I don't know why I wrote it. I guess I just wrote it so bad because it's, it felt natural. I yeah, like you that's had to be happen. fairly okay with siding with the evil side in order to trigger it, yeah. so you're like, oh, you know, people probably won't do that, but, you know, friends, there's always yeah. somebody. It's, it's always somebody. And it, our friends, and the, the ones who triggered it, oh, they were so sweet. They're game designers, and they're, like, the sweetest people, like, like one of my favorite people to work with. <laughs> <laughs> I've been making fun of him ever since for it. Yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, it was pretty bad. And it was, I think, the thing that I was most frustrated about, like, when we did that, and it was sort of jarring, and I, I think I kind of expected everybody to really take that and be like, you know, wow, the things we do matter. Like, and that's that's what I was getting at for 2016. You know, like the decisions we make matter. Um, but everybody wasn't like that. They were like, ha, yay, we got the bad stuff. This is fun. And I was like, this is not fun. Like, it was, mm. it was bad. Um, Did people want a do-over? Were there complaints? Yeah. Okay, because that's been my experience when you do anything that's like interactive, especially if there's a voting system. Mm -hmm. People vote in like uh, the less attractive path just to see what would happen, and then when the ending just appears abruptly, wait, 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 what? No, I want to play it again. (laughs) So, so as someone who maybe is trained on video games, you're like, oh, fine, I'll just put in more quarters and see what happens. Yeah, but a live performance is not like that. Like that, right? And that's where sort of. theater and games sort of crash into each other, right? Is where in games you have the agency to choose things, but in theater there's a finite end, so it sticks. Um, so I think it's wonderful, you know, because you have the ability to choose things, um, but like the real world, you don't get to go back and change your mind. Um, and so I, I didn't think that people got it at first. I was really frustrated, but then like all the emails started to roll in like, for months. <laughs> like two months after people were like yeah. why did you do that yeah. what were, I was having such a nice time up until you killed everybody right. um, so, I guess they were emotionally clear. invested I mean that's what I thought you know and it was 2016 I wanted them to feel that way you know because that's what 1939 was like as well right in 1939 there was an America First movement um, and it was headed by the extraordinarily charismatic Charles Lindbergh and there were 25,000 people who met in New York City in Madison Square Garden who were essentially Nazis and we forget that you know that there was a huge like anti-immigration anti-everything movement in 1939 and pretty much the only thing that really saved us from that was Pearl Harbor, you know, like if we hadn't been attacked, who knows where we would have gone with that, you know, so I wanted, I wanted people to feel that sense of like choice and the dire implications of making the wrong choice. (laughs) But at the same time, it seems like you could also take the show to be very lighthearted because there's jazz and there's dancing and there's singing and you are solving puzzles, but at the same time, the stakes seem incredibly high once you kind of peel back the onion a couple layers. I think the stakes are actually much higher than in most other things that you engage with. Uh, and I feel like, I don't know, that's something I take issue with a little bit for media today, 
is that it's almost a little too obvious. And so the choices that you have to make are a little too obvious. And so I'm sort of interested in media from the 30s and 40s, and also like uh, like Chinese um, fifth generation directors, uh, people who've had to operate in a very sort of tight social and moral code, and how they embed messages in a way that's not overtly obvious, but is very, very telling, you know? And I think uh, swing music is like that, right? You know, that on, on its surface that it's something that had to be very uplifting and loud and buoyant, uh, but at its core it was a rebellion to some of the darkest times the world has ever seen. You know, joy is the greatest rebellion. And, and so I want to create something that has that viral sense to it, not viral in like a, a virus that it's a, a meme or something where everybody starts sharing it, but more viral in the sense that you take in this story feeling like, oh, it's sweet, it's fun, it's joyful, but then when you start maybe drilling down into it a little bit, it's like, oh, wait, there's more. There's more there. Because there's always that misconception that if you are uh, happy or joyful that there's no depth to that. Um, but I don't think that's true. I think that there's a lot of depth to joy. It's just a matter of sort of, you have to look for it, you know? It's not it's not straightforward, uh, like macabre things are, you know? Macabre things to me are almost a little too plain, you know? It's like, it's oh, like too obvious for you? Yeah, yeah, it's a little too obvious for me. It's like, oh, great, it's death again, you know? Or like, oh, yeah, fabulous, everybody's on drugs, you know? And there's almost nothing to explore. Whereas if at its surface everything is very sweet and then you sort of brush things aside a little bit and it's like, oh, wait, no. I mean, that's sort of like real life, <laughs> right? Things seem sweet on the, on the surface, and they are, you know, but then, you know, as you sort of dig in, there's a little more layered texture to it. Yeah, it's also challenging with the historical connections. We don't want to make too light of the whole World War II thing, like the, yeah. the impact of your that. decision or the, whether or not you solve enough puzzles. We don't want to go killing millions of people based yeah. on that because that seems a little too harsh, but yeah. still we want to have some kind of an impact on the decisions that they make in the game. Yeah, this year um, this year was really challenging, right, because it was 1941, um, and so like literally thousands of people died in Pearl Harbor, um, in like brutal ways, and so we. Uh, so you're you're acknowledging that in the narrative itself. Yeah, yeah, uh, but at the same time, it's like we don't necessarily want the stakes to be like, oh, if you don't foil this plot, then Boston's the next harbor to be bombed. And you know, I did a lot of reading and research, and there was this sense of like, who's next, right? Like in you know Boston, New York, uh, like L.A., everybody was uh, you know very on edge, like especially California, right on the West Coast, um, like because that's sort of non-standard in war tactics that you attack one outpost and then you're done, right? Like we thought there was going to be a full invasion. We thought yeah. that it was the first in a series yeah. of attacks on American soil. Yeah. So you were kind of weaving this in. But still keeping it Christmasy, Nutcracker. So we had to go a totally different direction. Oh, I see. Yeah, I actually wrote that first and had to scrap it because <laughs> it was just too dire. You know, it was this sense of like, you know, who's next? Who's next? Um, and you know, Boston has this incredible shipbuilding uh, industry, um, and there there was a great story there too about how you know Rosie the Riveter in Boston was a shipbuilder, uh, not a not a, a plane engineer, and uh, and we had like a lot of. Um, sort of like integration and like everybody was working at this shipyard um, so initially I was going to bomb the shipyard <laughs> oh, oh dear yeah you can't do that <laughs> yeah that would have been hard uh, yeah it was just it was too much it was too much um yeah, and so I ended up actually going a really different direction. And again, like 2018, um, to me, like really was the year of sort of Me Too and realizing this, the un untold story of women. Um, and also this like untapped reservoir of uh, women talented workers. Um, it was a year where, um, like, as a, as a kid, I really genuinely thought that women just didn't do anything. Like, they were too busy. Like, they were, they were moms. They were doing mom things, you know. So all the women that you knew about, it was like Susan B. Anthony, who fought for women's rights, but there were, like, no big women artists or mathematicians or scientists or anything. It never occurred to me in a million years that there were, but we just 
never knew their stories, that other people were taking credit for their work. Never thought of that. Um, and that's a huge part of what happened in World War II. The person who broke um, one of the ciphers that won the war, uh, Code Purple, was Genevieve Gratian, um, who was a codebreaker from Indiana. And, uh, and there was just a huge population of women mathematicians and linguists and codebreakers that swore secrecy until the day they died. And only the story's only coming out now. Um, the impact that these women made in the war, and everybody thought they were secretaries, you know, and they weren't. They were doing serious code-breaking work. Um, they broke a code that people thought was completely unbreakable. Nobody thought that anybody could get through Code Purple, um, but they did it. So I turned the story in that direction Yeah, it seems like instead. a good fit because you've got the math and the puzzles and exactly. it fits the narrative that, yes, in order to accomplish this bigger goal, we need to be doing all of these puzzles. Yeah. Yeah, so the code-breaking fit in really nice and diegetically. Um, and I think we've, we've always been big into making our puzzles diegetic. You know, we don't want it just to be like, okay, and now I have a puzzle. Um, so, so quick time out. Yeah. Diegetic. I... For those people listening who have no idea about game design, what does that mean, diegetic, non-diegetic, from your perspective? Oh, so, um, diegetic is when the puzzle fits the story, essentially. Like, the puzzle belongs there. Um, it's in the world for a reason. Um, and this is an issue in the escape room world as well, right? That it's like... Uh, oh, I need to open this lock. Well, it's okay because there's a bunch of numbers written on the wall. Well, why? Right, like why would the scientist have done this? I don't understand. Exactly. Which is easier to do when, oh, you're, tra- you're trapped by a crazy person and they happen to make you solve puzzles to get out, which kind of makes sense. But when you're doing a bank heist and for some reason there's stuff to help you get into the vault, that makes a little less sense. That, like the tellers just left lying around. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. They just happen to have all the codes for the yeah. safe hanging out here. Which you sort of have to suspend disbelief when you do stuff like that. But we try and make ours connect as much as possible. So like the crypto- cryptography-themed... Puzzles were all somewhat related to cryptography. Yeah, and like, uh, so like Save the Munbacks um, was a new property, um, was a new story, and it's the most diegetic puzzle series I've ever built. So Save the Munbacks, your other major show that was in October. Yep. What was that? So um, Save the Munbacks um, was a story about the Society for the Protection of Magical Creatures, uh, Henrietta Hatherley and Mina Phipps are two Boston society women who got together to talk about the depletion of magical creatures in the New England area. You may or may not be aware that New England has its own local magical creature population, uh, which is being depleted by uh, farming, you know, uh, encroaching on the wild areas, uh, and the most endangered of all of these creatures, of course, is the great Munbacks. The glorious... Red-crested... Noble, that's right, red-crested... Dimmoth Munbacks. Which people were harvesting its feathers. Magical properties. Hunting it for its feathers, for its magical properties. Yeah, yeah. And it's especially a shame because the vocal emanation of this magical creature um, helps other plants to grow. And so uh, the Munbacks being... um, being depleted uh, uh, the population. Uh, right, it's this ecological impact on the whole area, all the yeah. other creatures. So The entire magical <laughs> ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, extremely dangerous. So we got everyone together as part of a sort of conference to explore different magical creatures and examine the Munbacks. Yeah, but then... It then turned. things went horribly wrong. <laughs> Go figure! <laughs> and we needed you to fix it. So. Yeah. Uh, so, so the Munbacks escaped, of course. Oh no! No, I know it was. Oh, it was one of my favorite moments of all times, like in any show that I've ever done. Um, the, you know, we did it in this mansion. Um, so we were we're in the Eustace Estate up in Milton, Mass, in October, and um, every night we had to sort of scatter all of the um, all of the players to like different parts of the room and like the the center parlor uh, is empty and then me and Lizzie Stark and like two other people um, Lizzie Stark was my co-creator with this um, lifted the Munbacks out of its holding tank and this thing was pretty big (laughs) so you're doing like this big reveal of the Munbacks yes they had seen it already and then they had gone off to their magical classes you could do 
potions, magic herbology, divinations, spells. So everybody went yeah. off to separate areas for the classes and then while the Munbax was escaping. Yeah. Yeah, and then we stole the Munbax and we ran them into the woods in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> so we're there in our ball gowns running this massive sculpture across the estate and casting like a... Um, White feathers yep. and glow sticks, glow which sticks. are and, and how big is the Munbax? Oh gosh, how big is it? The size of a twin bed, maybe? Yeah. Oh yeah, gosh, that's that's fairly large. Yeah. Big, big animal. It took a couple people to carry him. Yeah. It was so, light, but it was yeah, large. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we worked with an artist who just built some wonderful things. Uh, Hillary Scott. The name of the artist. Um, oh, so anyway, so uh, the diegetic puzzles that we did, um, then you had to figure out what was wrong with the Munbags in the first place. And that really lent itself to sort of the scientific exploration. You know, like what's in the water? What's in the food? What do these different animals eat? How do they affect each other? And so we were able to create a series of puzzles that really locked together really beautifully. I was excited about like that. Like the potions puzzle involved actually mixing potions and things like that to try and figure out what was going on there. Yeah. The magic herbology, you're interacting with plants. Yeah. So you had a bunch of performers also who were like teaching the classes mm -hmm. and helping people along with the puzzles with the goal of saving the mumbacks. Correct. And were, were you able to save him, so, her, it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we never quite figured out. It's non-binary mumbacks, I think. We never quite decided on that. But uh, yeah, so that was kind of interesting, was that um, that game um, diegetically worked really nicely. Um, Drosselmeyer is so big, and there's so many things happening at the same time, whereas Munbax was a little bit more directed. Um, you could explore the house if you wanted to. You could interact with all of the different NPCs, but in general, you solved the mystery. Um, we didn't have people that did much of anything other than solve the mystery. Um, and there were, it was really pretty binary, you know? It was like, a, like either you saved the Munbax or you didn't, and people saved the Munbax every night. And so our audience, while they really liked it, they were like, oh, this is kind of on rails. Like, we didn't feel like we could affect the ending. And I laughed so hard because I was like, you usually can't affect the ending of a play, you know? <laughs> like, you only think you can do that because I taught you you can do that in my stuff. Um, so people who had seen Drosselmeyer were expecting multiple endings, but this one only had one. Yeah. So you didn't even write one where the society failed? We did. Oh, you We did, but the society never failed. Um... Yeah, I, I think because we'd created it to be sort of a family production, getting to the ending, uh, we had a lot more people who got to the ending. Um, Probably half or more. Oh, yeah, half or more. Yeah, yeah whereas with Drosselmeyer, we only had maybe two or three groups that will get to the ending. But with Munbax, like, there were enough people that they always triggered the ending. Um, and plus they can they would collaborate more than I think they do for, yeah, uh, so for Drosselmeyer. Because everybody really was going around communally trying to figure things out. That's interesting that they didn't like that they succeeded. Um, one discussion I've seen a lot with puzzlers and escape room fans is feeling like they're also getting shuttled towards the ending and that they're always, you know, oh, we won with a couple minutes to spare. Right. And then, you know, you look at, like, the success rate and the failure rate. And a lot of the folks who make more accessible escape room work are trying to get very high win rates. They want everyone to have their moment to shine, their chance to be a hero. But it sounds like what you saw was they they felt kind of like mixed feelings about that. Yeah, I mean, people who'd never been to Drosselmeyer or any of our other shows, um, they're like, wow, this is great, we had a great time. And still in general, I, I think the re response was really good. Um, but that was a complaint that we heard from people who are accustomed to Drosselmeyer that uh, was too easy. You know, they didn't have enough agency to get at the end. Yeah, we wanted to make it a bit more accessible so more people could get to the end and see all the puzzles, um, see all the different interactions, because it was fun doing each thing. Yeah, yeah, we had a smaller number of puzzles, too. <coughs> you know, we, we do a dozen or more for Drosselmeyer, and they're mostly paper-based. Uh, but the puzzles for Munbacks, uh, like Brian said, you know, you were, like, mixing potions. We actually had all of the test tubes, and you had to mix things and measure them. We had uh, plants that you had to talk to. They had, like, speakers, and you had to listen and as they whispered to you. <laughs> That's very cool. So a lot more of that, like, physical kind of stuff. And it made sense in that 
magical world where there's magical creatures right. and the plants are also magical and you can make potions. Right, right. So of course, of course, plants would talk to you, you know, in the in the world of Halloween Phipps. Mm. So uh, yeah, so that that was really it was really interesting. We learned a lot from that piece, um, and we learned a lot about how to draw some art from that piece too. I think. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now, or is it a secret? I can tell you a couple things. Okay. Um, so I'm helping out um, Elizabeth Stark and Jason Morningstar. Uh, they're doing um, a LARP that they're calling Tip for Works, and I'm excited about it because it's about the history of labor. And of course, you know, being from New England, like you know, we're the nexus of the bread and roses strikes, and uh, so I'm sort of working with the environment. Uh, shaping for that one. I'm trying really, really hard to get us into somewhere like Lawrence or Lowell, somewhere we can actually be in one of those old mills where they had the strikes back in the day. So that won't come up for probably about a year or so. Um, but uh, yeah, but that is definitely in the works and that we found some really, really cool spaces that I'm excited about. Yeah, and then other than that, a couple things in my pocket. <laughs> Not much I can talk about. So for people who maybe love immersive theater and are starting to dip their toes into something that maybe has more agency, mm-hmm. do you have any tips both for creators as well as kind of players who are like, uh, I've never LARPed before, I've done one escape room, or maybe I'm not really a gamer, but this sounds interesting. Like how, how do you recommend they approach it? So I would say... For, for builders, definitely, I would start with an existing community base. Um, I think that helped us out a lot in Boston, especially, again, like there's maybe three cities in America where you can post, you know, hey, we're going to have a show, people will show up, right? If you're from Los Angeles, New York, or Chicago, you know, you can probably just scatter to the winds and hopefully people will show up. But for every other city, every other smaller city, um, I, I think it really helps to work with an existing community and build something that you know they show up for. Um, and that can be any community. You know, for us it was the swing dancing and vintage community and, you know, escape room community also showed up. Um, but say if you're connected to, you know, I, I don't know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, you know, like whatever, whatever community you know will be your core, um, I, I would say, you know, build something that you know that they can get behind and will show up for. How do you message what you're trying to make so that, for example, um, a super fervent LARPer or escape room fanatic doesn't come in expecting something that is pure LARP or pure escape room? Oh, that's hard to do, actually. Um, Especially with our work, which there's no real... There's no real word yet for what we do. Even sometimes, like immersive people, uh, like immersive theater people, will come in expecting Drosselmeyer to be like Sleep No More, you know. And it's really not, you know. It's it's immersive, like Sleep No More, but like you've got a lot of agency in Drosselmeyer, but it's also not an escape room. So it's really hard to signal that, right? <laughs> like, how do you say? I think um, I think time will be on our side as far as that goes because especially in Boston there's a lot more work that's being created that has these elements to it um you know so first it was Drosselmeyer but then you know Munbach's also had those elements and um in Cantrix um with uh with Athena and Caroline like they're building stuff that also has this feel to it and uh Northeastern they just had a student project that also had this feel to it um and so the playable theater project uh out of Northeastern in uh in Boston that's sort of exploring this sort of, I think it's sort of like puzzle-based interactions with theatrical elements is sort of what we're calling it. They're, they're like calling it a puzzle play, but I'm not sure if I like that way of saying it quite yet. So I think like especially you're going to see more of this type of work coming out of Boston. Um, again, like working with your existing user base. Like Boston just has a lot of puzzlers. That's just sort of the feel of our city. You know, it's the the town of the MIT puzzle hunt, you know, the, the mystery hunt, and, you know, people just do a lot of brainy puzzling. So we know if we create something like that, the people are going to show up. Um, yeah, so I think as we create more work like that, then people will get more accustomed to what it actually is. Then I think just being open about, you know, what the difficulty of the puzzles is and um, what type of interaction you're going to be expecting, how much role-playing you're going to do. So, for example... You know, I think one of the other companies in Boston will, will rate each of their experiences by how involved the puzzling is relative to their other experiences, if you're familiar with what types of things they do. 
Oh, that's cool. So it's on a scale, so you can see that they're like making right. a spectrum of work. Right. So uh, this much role-playing, this much interactivity, this much puzzling. Um, maybe sometimes they would do something like without any puzzles at all. Right, yeah. So they, they rate it on a scale of, I forget what's at the low end, but the high end of the scale is Mystery Hunt. So if you're doing <laughs> level 10 puzzles, you know, this would be about a 7 or something like that for one of their experiences versus a 2 for one of the others. So that's a good way to think about it. And yeah. I think you could do something similar for the interactivity so that the LARPers aren't disappointed when there's sort of a light interaction, but there's some... It's a good way to do it. We should just put that on our website. Yeah, there we go. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. so problem solving yeah. on the fly. Right. Yes. So let's say um, I'm an immersive theater fan. I've seen Sleep No More, then she filmed me with a couple other shows, and I want to come to Dross this Christmas. How do I prepare? What, what kind of mindset should I come in with? Well... Let's say you don't puzzle at all. <laughs> say, say you don't puzzle. Okay, so I think personally that the best way to prepare for dross is to get a really good outfit. <laughs> <laughs> because it really helps to get you immersed in the environment and to make it special. Um, there's a museum writer uh, called uh, Nina Simon, and she wrote this wonderful article called The Magic Vest. And it talked about how when you ask people to put on an item of clothing, that it will change how they interact with the space around them. And when you're wearing an item of clothing, um, it changes how people will interact with you. And I've seen this happen, like when people show up in like jeans and t-shirts, and they do kind of stand in the corner of the club, and it takes them longer to sort of get into the world. Um, but all the, the smallest things, right? Like if you just have like a fedora or you just have a pair of suspenders, then you walk in and now you can't pretend that you didn't mean to be here anymore, right? You can't pretend that it's an accident that you ended up in 1939. Like you committed, you're wearing those suspenders, you belong here. And so I think that's my first piece of advice, right? Is that, you know, wear the suspenders, wear the red lipstick, you know, and even if you're feeling a little uncomfortable, that little piece of world that you bring with you will signal to yourself that like, no, I'm here, I'm here to play, like I belong here. And bringing your friends, too, I think is good. If you show up on your own and you're not super outgoing and you wouldn't have as much luck pairing up with other teams, it's nice having some people that you know to help out with yeah. different things. And everybody has their own strengths, you know, whether they prefer to do puzzles or more of the interaction, it's nice to be able to divide things up. Yeah, yeah, we've had a lot of people who brought their parents, yeah. which is really fun. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I often think about how a lot of these immersive interactive experiences have this very kind of... This, they attract only this tiny subset of like the age range that's possible. So having something where mom and dad can dance or they can rest. And if they want to see what you're working on puzzle-wise, like they can kind of insert themselves into the action if they choose. Do you, do you see a lot of that? I see a lot of that. And also, like, our band is incredible. Like, we have a really good band. And our acts are fantastic. Um, so if you come with your parents like sometimes your parents just like they watch the band and we've got we've got these amazing tap dancers like Herr Drosselmeyer does this spectacular magic routine it's different every year um, we've got a wonderful aerialist oh she's so good um, and so we've had people leave not knowing that there was even a puzzle layer like they did they know there was a story happening yeah we uh we usually take over the theater or uh, the stage about three times um, so at the beginning, we'll set the scene, you know, so we'll say something like, you know, oh no, there's a mole in the club, but what do we do? Uh, and, and then we'll kind of set it off and let it go, and then we'll wrap it up at the end, like, the mole has been found, it is! Um, but that's pretty, so, so they know that something happened, but a lot of people don't necessarily know that they have the agency to go track that. Down. Right, like they could have gotten involved if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, but they seem like they had a good time anyway. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of people that said to me this year um, that have been to Drosselmeyer before, um, they were like, oh, yeah, last year I went and I puzzled really hard, and this year I'm just going to dance. Um, or the other way around, right? Like, last year I was just kind of sitting and watching things happen, but, man, I'm ready this time. This year I'm going to puzzle. And see, people sometimes, like, they, they're starting to get used to the format, and so they go in with a, a battle plan, you know? They're like, okay, I'm going to find the puzzles, and you're going to sit, and you're going to solve everything. And, yeah, so it, I think people are getting more accustomed to it. Awesome. What are you looking forward to as the space grows and evolve? Immersive, interactive, theater and gaming colliding more? Yeah, yeah, theater and gaming colliding more. That I'm really excited about. Um, I think we've got... 
just a bunch of really great communities, and I really want to see them interacting more. Um, so I want to see more gaming and theater. I want to see more theater and gaming. Um, something that we have a really good time with is like we bring a bunch of dancers uh, in. Like you know, we have all these performances, and you know, and we've got all the jazz musicians that play, and so we've got a, a pretty large swath of Boston's artistic community in that one show. And I think that immersive is the type of format where you can really seamlessly bring a lot of artists from your city together to sort of look across the theater and be like, oh my god, look at those guys. Wow, look at what they're doing. Uh, we have this very siloed world of arts producers, um, but immersive has the ability to take writers, game designers, you know, theater directors, uh, people who sing, people who play music, people who dance, people who do visual art, people who do costumes and installations and light. We can do all of this together, you know, and really create this sort of multi-arts community where everybody works together and, and appreciates each other. Um, yeah, so I think that that's, that's one thing that I'm really excited about and looking forward to it. Another thing that I'm really interested in, like, the, the game that I you know, sort of have in my back pocket that I'm hoping to release within the next year or two. Um, integrating digital arts as well, um, because my specialty with games has always been location-based games, sort of the melding of tech and real world. And so Drosselmeyer um, was really very real world, um, and Munbeck started to put a little bit more tech into it. Um, and then this next thing that I'm thinking of, I'd like to include maybe more tech, because I think we have this idea right now that it's like when you're in tech, then you it's the tech world, and when you're in the real world, then it's the real world. But we see tech seeping into our existence all the time in ways that are uncontrolled, right? Like people are just sort of sucked into their phones, and the UI of how to interact between the world and the technology is not very directed. Um, I think it's just because we never really thought about it before. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested in getting more, like, more developers, more digital artists, uh, more people who are into VR, AR, XR. Like, how can they help build out our immersive theater world without it being, like, a completely separate thing, right? It's like, there's theater, and then there's, like, people that are in their rigs. Like, how do we integrate those things? Because those are other resources that we have that we really need to, really need to exploit. Exploit more resources. Exploit, explore. Yes. <laughs> uh, great. So how can people keep up with you and what you are doing? Ah, well, um, check out, um, well, definitely get on our mailing list. So check out Drosselmeyer, uh, com, And, yeah, so sign up for the mailing list and we'll tell you what's happening with this next year and also uh, Munbax is HeatherlyPhipps.com or SaveTheMunbax.com so totally check those out if you have some questions about what things look like um, or email me anytime knock knock at GreenDoorLabs.com or uh, social media um, at GreenDoorLabs um, both on Instagram and Facebook like I love hearing from people so ping me anytime um, I love to collaborate with you know whatever skills people have um I'm kind of a maniac with building things. Like, I really just like to get things out the door and, and use as many people as I can to make it happen. So, yeah, so if you have ideas, ping me. We'll find a way. Awesome. Well, thank you both so very much. It's been amazing. Great conversation. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Once again, I want to thank Catherine for taking over duties on hosting today. Uh, and you can find Kellyanne and Brian's work at greendoorlabs.com. Uh, we're going to be swift because I don't trust that the computer will not break down on me again soon. A couple of notes. If you are in Los Angeles... Uh, and you are hearing this on Sunday or on Monday, uh, there's a talk back at Thymeli at 7 o'clock uh, about IDS uh, run by Leia. Uh, come on down. It's a town hall, so uh, we'll talk about IDS. There's people and whatnot. It's going to be a little gathering. We'll share what we've learned, uh, you know, take feedback, yada, yada, yada. Uh, should be pretty uh, interesting and good. Uh, hope to see you there. Five bucks at the door. Why is it not free? Because uh, the room's not free. Hi. Welcome to reality. We get a nice discount. Uh, John is very gracious with us, but uh, he could be renting it out to a bunch of other people. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, we pay at the door. Is how it works. Uh, 
Anyway, uh, speaking of things that cost, again, the Patreon, patreon.com slash no presidium. I wish we lived in a big, happy world where we could just do all this for free and run around and whatnot. That'd be that'd be wonderful. Uh, That's not the world we were born into. Find an alternate reality. Uh, Get me a portal out of here, please. Something, anything. I'd like one with Superman in it. Uh, Maybe not one where he dies. Uh, Find me an earth where that doesn't happen Uh, and take me there, please. where was I going with this? Oh, right. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. And let's talk about the people who uh, make it all possible all the time. The sustaining backers of no proscenium are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurstan, Mark Baltazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. Thank you all, gentlemen. And uh, indeed, thank you, Ross, for coming out and volunteering at IDS for a second year in a row. Um, it's been really good to have you part of the crew there. You can find us uh, at No Proscenium on Twitter and Facebook. We're NoProscenium.com in case somehow you wound up here without knowing that. Uh, Everything Immersive is the Facebook group, or you can plug in EverythingImmersive.com. There is a Slack with over a thousand people in it, uh, which you can find, I believe it's bit.ly.com slash NoProSlack. Right. Catherine is very, very on the bitlies. Um, Catherine, you is our managing editor. I'm Noah Nelson, uh, the founder, publisher and the uh, ringmaster here uh, of this uh, insane podcast. And um, the music is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. Mm-hmm.